This is part 15 of The Horse and the Rider. It's one story that begins at part one, so if you haven't heard that, go back. and the Rider. Part 15. The Blob. The Murray River travels 2,500 kilometres along its total length, beginning high in the snowy mountains and winding an exhausting and laborious route through three states before emptying a muddy trickle into Lake Alexandrina and the Southern Ocean. Along the way, it irrigates crops and livestock, gardens and woodland, flows deep and strong along glorious cliffsides and into lakes where life is bountiful, before drying into depressing pans of mud and salt and intermittently springing back into life. At Colindina, the river fragments into tributaries before opening into Lake Malwalla, coursing around and through a few dozen marshy islands from which some stunted mangroves and gums reach half-heartedly skywards. Bent and leaning as they are, they provide shelter for yabbies and riverfish from hawks and other predators, and also from the eyes of the farmers and occasional tourists who drive past along Spring Drive and who naturally keep their eyes on the verdant scenery around them instead of squinting at the brown mid-river scrub. Perhaps they grew the blob. Perhaps they only hid it for a while. But when the blob appeared upstream, it was the Mulwalla mangroves that drew the accusations of the townspeople and riverboat operators. Blob appears at Mulwalla, the local newspaper announced excitedly. And it was exciting, easily the most exciting thing that had ever happened in Mulwalla. The oldest people in the Riverina convened over a complimentary morning tea put on by the paper and the local council and agreed. Nothing more exciting had ever happened. Not the Sydney 2000 Olympics torch relay running through town. Not the headless and handless body of the Mulwalla man who had been discovered in a billabong in 1995. Not Sarah Harris from Gerogery who had moved to Canberra and become a Channel 5 weather woman. None of them held a candle to the sudden appearance of the smooth and shimmering blob, three metres of which curved up out of the water, perfectly calm and translucent, inscrutable and plainly terrifying. Some local fishermen rode a tinny up to the side of the blob and peered at it closely, but could see nothing but the occasional string of gas bubbles, some centimetres inside the cloudy grey surface, that drifted slowly to the top of the blob. One of them stuck an oar into the blob and found it plunged in smoothly, but would not be withdrawn, pull as he might. 
Eventually, he pulled a little too hard and the tinny capsized, leaving both fishermen to paddle gasping and terrified to the shore, their mouths clamped tight, and find that when they emerged from the water, their entire bodies were covered in a light grey sheen. They looked back for their oar, but it had disappeared. Two weeks after it first appeared, it moved suddenly, from the waters upstream of the mangroves to a new position 10 metres from the shore of Lake Mulwalla on the southeastern side. The water flowed swiftly here too, but the blob didn't move. And as interest began waning, the blob thrust itself back into the public consciousness with a low wail. It wasn't noticed at first. But a group of local teens who had come down to the shore to throw rocks at the blob thought they heard something, and told a fisherman, who carefully putted his boat out to the blob and noticed the wailing got louder as he approached it. Wary local police ignored the story until a rumour started that the wail was coming from a child who was drowning in the blob. Then backup was called for and within a couple of days a dive team from the nearest regional centre had been dispatched. The Victoria Police frogmen handled the situation with brusque confidence, reconnoitering the scene rapidly before falling backwards off their boat and swimming towards the underneath of the blob, where one of them immediately spotted on the lake bed a yellowy-white human skull. They swam down to get it, and as soon as it had been retrieved, the blob ceased its wailing. Suddenly and eerily, the lake was silent again. The skull was taken to a forensic laboratory in Melbourne, where it was found to be a DNA match to the murdered Mulwalla man. A 3D construction of the face was circulated on the news, and Edith Jeffries of Coburg, whose brother Matthew had disappeared while on a stone fruit picking working holiday in 1994, came forward. Tests were run. A match was made. The identity of the Mulwalla man was finally solved. The identity of his killer, of course, remained a mystery. Police determined Matthew Jeffries had been decapitated after death and that the cause of death was likely to be blunt force trauma due to a fine fracture around three centimetres in diameter near the crown of his skull. The area was searched again, but no weapon was located. Forensic detectives generated a list of common tools and weapons that could have dealt such a blow to a skull, but the list was extensive and included most brands of commercially available hammers and mallets. The trail fell cold again until, some weeks later, the residents of the shores of Lake Mulwalla awoke to the sound of the blob's eerie wailing spread over their peaceful valley once more. The police divers were called back. Underneath the blob, they found a golden hammer, its handle also of gold, murky with slime and mud that had seeped into its bezels and underneath the precious gems that adorned it. It was topped with a thickly weighted hammerhead that was wickedly pointed on one end and came to a flat, three-centimetre circular prism at the other. There was no direct evidence that it was Matthew Jeffrey's murder weapon, of course, but it seemed logical that it was. Questions remained. 
Who had killed Matthew Jeffries and why? Why did they use this ornate and expensive weapon to do so and where it had come from? The state waited eagerly to see where the blob would go next. Surely the next time its whale went up, another clue would be found and the book could be finally closed on the sad death of the outgoing young man who had set off from home with plans of making a little money and sowing his wild oats and had been hit in the head with a hammer and butchered and thrown into the lake instead. As the state waited, the anticipation became too much for Victor Stuhlberg, a former landscaper who had happened upon Matthew Jeffries on a moonless night in 1994 and felt like murdering someone. Victor Stuhlberg turned himself in and was put on trial. Why did you kill Matthew Jeffries? The prosecution asked. I felt as though I had to, Victor Stuhlberg told them simply. How did you kill him? They asked. I hit him on the head with the golden hammer, and then I cut off his head and hands with the golden knife so no one would know it was him. Then I hid the body in different places, he explained. Where did you get the golden weapons from? The prosecution asked. And Victor Stuhlberg told them, I got them from the golden chest. It contained other treasures as well. I've never been able to find it again. The prosecution was skeptical, but asked, Where did you find it the first time? I found it on the shore of Lake Mulwalla, where I pulled my boat in after I went fishing. I could see something shiny while I was fishing. I rode in and saw there was a golden chest. I looked inside and found the golden hammer and the golden knife. There was a golden trowel as well and some other tools. They were all made of gold, but I could only carry two. I took the golden hammer and the golden knife and walked out to the road. I was going to come back for the rest, but then I met Matthew Jeffries. After I killed him, I was too scared to come back. And what did you do with the golden hammer and the golden knife? I threw them in the river. They were bad luck. Police took Victor Stuhlberg out to the riverbend where he said he'd thrown the knife. It was never found. He was given 18 years in prison. Meanwhile, the mysterious nature of the Blob's origins continued to enchant local adventurers. Scientists in precisely piloted motorboats took careful samples of Blob for analysis, but found when they returned to the lab that their jars and test tubes were full of fresh water. A local entrepreneur started riverboat tours of the Blob, taking groups on a circuit of Lake Mulwalla and recounting the story of the Blob's origins and playing them audio clips of its whale. But as the mystery of Matthew Jeffrey's murder was resolved and began to disappear from newspapers, the numbers dwindled and the tour shut down. After a while, the blob moved back to the shelter of the River Delta. Over several months, it decreased in size until it was about the size of a beach ball. Although by then, no one was watching. Then one morning, a piercing screech rang out over the valley. The local farmers gunned their four-wheel drives down to the shore with the earmuffs they wore when they were using the chainsaw and gazed in dismay at the blob in the middle of Lake Mulwalla. It was bigger than ever. 15 metres in diameter, it rose horribly from the surface of the lake. The calm water around it shook with the volume of its screeching. The Victoria Police frogmen were summoned back. 
They splashed half-heartedly around the base of the blob and found the water deeper than expected. A sonar device was shipped up from Melbourne and determined the bottom of the trench to be more than 50 metres below, which was too deep for the frogmen. The noise was irritating as well, and the murder had been solved, so the frogmen held a meeting with the mayor of the Shire. We're going home, the frogmen told him. You can't, the mayor protested. The blob knows about crimes. It's probably sitting on top of a clue, or many clues, he continued desperately. We don't have any scuba gear in this shire, so who knows how long it'll take for someone to swim down there and check it out. We can, the frogman corrected him, and there's no evidence this blob knows anything about crimes. For all we know, the clues it found were a complete coincidence, and in any case, it's too deep for our equipment. We couldn't get what's down there even if we wanted to, which we don't because all this is is an algal build-up, and algae doesn't find clues. The frogmen were wrong, but they went home anyway. No one from the government cared what the blob was or what it had found. The only people who did care what was under the blob were the residents around Lake Mawalla, who had to sleep with earplugs and white noise blaring to drown out the moaning blob, which persisted as weeks turned into months. Eventually, the mayor cancelled plans to upgrade the scenic drive around the lake and redirected the funds from the three-year infrastructure package into a reward slush fund. He posted advertisements in Sydney and Melbourne, in Canberra as well, and in the regional centres of Shepparton and Wagga Wagga and in Albury-Wodonga. Divers wanted, the ad said. Reward offered for any clues recovered. Divers must supply own gear and ear protection. The reward was posted at $50,000. For two weeks, the lakeshore thronged with amateur divers, keen for the challenge and the tantalising cash prize. But as they emerged from their land cruisers and station wagons and heard for the first time the eerie wailing of the blob, the thought popped into their minds that this wasn't right. They set their faces in masks of confidence and plunged into the lake, headlamps on and watertight earplugs in place, but as they neared the blob and the wailing crescendoed and they saw the yawning pit beneath it open up, they turned to their dive partners and performed the special hand movement that means let's carefully but quickly return to the surface and end the dive. If they didn't do that, and not all did, they continued into the pit where the water became murky and visibility dropped to centimetres. The light of the sun was obscured by the vast girth of the blob above them, and down there the water seemed thick and heavily laden with mud and unknown particles. For many it was here that the gesture was performed and the exit made. For some, only two, the dive continued. Jenny Hazels, a school teacher from Shepparton and experienced cave diver continued down to a depth of 40 metres before the pressure and the oppressively terrifying atmosphere convinced her to leave. And John Stanton, a whale guideboat tour operator from Marimbula, continued past even there and found himself hopelessly disoriented. He passed out and drifted for a short while. When he awoke, he found that he couldn't tell which way was up. He remained calm until his lightning air tank told him his air was almost gone. And then he panicked, but it was too late for either calm or panic. 
He died, and his body slowly floated back to the surface. It was absorbed into the blob. The divers soon stopped coming. The blob, however, continued to wail. A Yarrawonga farmer shot the back of his head off with the farm rifle. The state government got involved. The cash reward was raised to $1 million. The boosted cash incentive drew in a fresh crowd of adventurers. A famous Californian freediver posted a rambling Facebook video in which he promised to solve the mystery and reach the bottom of the hole in the name of freediving, and that the full sum of the reward money would be donated to charity. A team of divers who specialised in diving to deep water shipwrecks and recovering the possessions of wealthy investors quietly and confidently decamped to the shores of Lake Mawalla and a firm that specialised in mapping the ocean floor dispatched their equipment to the Victorian countryside. Suddenly, the lake was as thriving as it had ever been. Television crews set up for the long haul with broadcast vans and satellite dishes. The ancient Lake Mawalla General Store, which had stood empty since the late 1970s, was given a hasty makeover and restocked by a local entrepreneur named Fiona Preswold, who also bought two dozen luxury tents from a supplier in Melbourne and had them set up in a shady lakeside grove just up the road from the commotion. Families bust in for camping holidays. A miniature town sprang up. The turnover was high, of course, given the blob was still pulsing out its eerie, unwavering wail. But for now, it had a certain electric spirit of building excitement. It felt as though a resolution was at hand, an answer to the tremendous question of what the blob was and why. But the answer was not ready. The freediver failed humiliatingly and announced a hiatus from social media due to exhaustion and depression. The shipwreck divers found that no matter what they tried, they could not escape a plague of tiny accidents, miscalibrated instruments, ambiguous hand signals, malfunctioning gear and more that sent them frustrated back to the surface, dive after dive. The mappers generated a crystal clear 3D plan of the entirety of Lake Mawalla. But when they trained their instruments on the hole beneath the blob, they found nothing. The hole descended 50 metres in their software, and beyond that, neither continued nor ended. The scans showed an inconclusive result. The scans were run again, and again, and again, with variables tweaked and different methodologies applied, but the answer remained the same, inconclusive. These high-profile three packed up and left, but throughout the season, other players came through, dived, and left disgruntled. The whale persisted. A feeling of grim inevitability settled once again on Lake Mawalla. Local residents began to find dead snakes and birds in the bush and fields around the lake, and a brief scientific examination yielded the cause. The animals had starved. The lake had been entirely emptied of fish and amphibians. 
the council upped the reward to $15 million. Three days after the announcement was made, a charter flight arrived at Albury Airport with three Italian men of a look and attitude rarely seen in that particular part of Australia. The three men wore scarves and swung elegant carved pale-handled umbrellas from their wrists. They each had a different kind of facial hair. They had beautiful olive skin and rich brown eyes, and their lips when they spoke fluttered gently. Their names were Marco, Angelo and Francesco. They carried a letter of recommendation from the Italian Prime Minister and quickly accessed the reception area of the Commodore Motor Inn on Kiwa Street, passing through the heavy fortifications with a whispered word and a greased palm. They dined together on Marco's balcony, carving slices from a long and spicy Italian salami and a hard semicircle of Grana Padano cheese, both of which had been brought through customs undeclared, and drank from a bottle of Barolo. They went to bed early because they were tired from their long international flight, and when they woke up the next morning, they took the manager's car to the offices of Recreational Sailor. Buongiorno, they spoke into the battered steel intercom on street level. We would like to speak it to Leanne. Thanks for listening to The Horse and the Rider. It's written, read and produced by me, Max Laverne. If you'd like to support it, you can make a donation at ko-fi.com slash maxlaverne. And please send me a message. You can DM me on Twitter, prawn underscore meat. I would also love it if you would rate and review this podcast if you can. And if you haven't already, check out my substack, infinitegossip.substack.com. If you know anyone who's into classified ads, make sure you tell them about this podcast because next week in episode 16, the biggest deal of the whole series goes down. I'm talking bulk cash for a huge product. So it's a great time to put a hair partner, as they'd probably say.